Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this precious promise. And we thank you, Lord God, for your word that we can trust. We pray, Lord God, that you'd illuminate our understanding and give us the ability to understand and to obey what you'd have for us today to rest in you. Father, we pray that you would also um, give me unction and utterance. Give me power to preach your word, Father. Anoint this message. Lord, make it useful to people, Father, as only you can do, Father. There's no wisdom or power or any kind of good that can come from this apart from you and what you will do through it. So we ask you to do what only you can do and bless people with this message in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three basic areas where we're called, and we're going to look at those today. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll put the main emphasis on the first area of call, of the call of God in the Word of God, and that is the call to salvation. And then we'll look at the call to sanctification and the call to service. We'll probably not spend a lot of time on those um, if we stick to the plan that we've got here today. So we're going to look real quick at the call to salvation. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's talking about the very God of peace who will sanctify you or praying that the God of peace will sanctify you wholly and that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this sanctifying work and this preservation work is based then in verse 24 on the call of God and the completion of the work of God, the call of God to salvation and the completion of the total salvation of the sinner by God. Whenever you're saved, there's a three-part salvation that God offers people. Salvation begins with the spirit of a man. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto, unto thee, you must be born again. These were Christ's words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And this call to salvation involves the born-again spirit of a man, that God would take an unregenerate, dead in trespasses and sins, sinner, a man who's separated from God, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, far off from the covenant, um, unable to gain access to God, and God calls him through to salvation. The man is born again by the power of God, and his spirit is saved unto the day of the Lord. And that spirit then is in and dwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said, "If you believe in me, if and um, do my do the do my keep my commandments, He says, my Father and I will come and make our abode with that man. I'll send the Comforter, that's the Holy Ghost, the Triune Godhead moves into the born again believer at the moment of salvation." Salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is really simple in the Bible. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So why don't more people get saved? And why isn't everyone that says they're saved saved? Why do they live like hell and act like the devil and pretend to be saved and yet not be saved? And why would anybody do such a thing? What kind of folly is that to pretend like you're saved? That's kind of the worst of both worlds. You got to try and keep up a play act that you're saved all the while marching straight towards hell and limiting yourself in your enjoyment of sin, limiting yourself in the service of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and not reaping any of the benefits of salvation. Paul said, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men most miserable. He says, if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. I guess I can't remember if it was like a Frenchman or some theologian whose um, work has been much touted about in our day, where some guy, some philosopher or theologian said, if we never have any other hope in salvation other than a moral life now we will have still had a better life than any lost man. And I say, bah, humbug, hooey, and fooey on that. Paul does too. Paul said, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. And he goes through the great list of those things that true Christianity produces in the life of a believer. Things like persecution and travail and imprisonment and hunger and thirst and famine and nakedness and perils and the sword and all of the reproaches that fall 
on those that try and serve Jesus Christ, all of the heartache, all of the difficulties that come to the true servant and follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul made this statement, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. Our faith is in vain. Paul did not for one minute preach your best life now. Paul preached a gospel that is your worst life now and your best life to come. Jesus preached that too. He said, if a man will not forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. He that will see, he that will save his life will lose it. And he that will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will, and the gospel's sake will find it. So this life that we're called to, this life of salvation, is a simple life, it's a simple salvation, it's a suffering life, and it's one that it makes no sense to fake. I cannot comprehend the benefit that people perceive that they will get from pretending to be a Christian. It is absolutely mind-blowing why anybody would pretend to be a Christian. I met a man one day who is straddling a motorcycle and living for the devil with all of his heart, and he used phony Christians as his excuse to live for the devil. And I told that man that he was in his basic philosophy of of not even trying, that that was a right response to the phony Christianity, but it was a false response to true Christianity. Some people got offended with me for telling him that. You shouldn't tell him that. At least if he tried to be a Christian and went to church and gave money, he'd be better off. Not true. There's not a lick of truth in that. You can go to church all your life and give to God and try and do good deeds. And if you're not born again by the power of hell, all you'll do is deny yourself the little bit of good you can get in this life from the pleasures of sin for a moment and then plunge into the lake of fire for all of eternity. It doesn't do you a lick of good. We've got to get back to the real gospel. We've got to get back to the the line that God draws between saved and lost. There is no gray area in God's salvation. You are either saved or you are lost. And if you are lost, you are in for a devil's hell. And one of and the worst place I can imagine going to hell from is a church house where you heard the gospel day in and day out, week in and week out, where you were preached to, where you heard the truth, and you never would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And instead you trusted in your own righteousness, your own merit. You trusted in your heritage. You trusted in your baptism. You trusted in your confirmation. And then you die and hear the Lord say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. There is no worse fate that can be imagined. The harlot doesn't have as bad of a fate as the lost preacher who dies in the pulpit preaching the word of God and falls into the lake of fire because he never submitted himself to the righteousness of God, repented of his sins, and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here we're going to look at this call to salvation. This will, um, in some ways, this may alleviate some of your questions, answer some of your questions about why some people um, profess a false Christianity. On the other hand, it may open a whole field of questions that I cannot answer and no other man alive can answer to you about the gospel and God's responsibility in the gospel because God is God and God does what God does and there's a lot of things God does he doesn't tell us about. So you've just got to take what God says. It's important for you to understand what God says. It's important for you to believe what God says. But if you think that you're going to be able to quantify and analyze and systematically dissect everything about God and who he is, you are wrong and you're in for a major fall. Pride goeth before a a destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. Peter here is preaching to the people on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are all preaching the word of God in the tongues, in their native tongue, Galilean. And all the people around them are hearing in their tongues, like the Phrygian tongue and the Pamphylian tongue and the Egyptian tongue and the Roman tongue and um, all these different tongues, Arabian tongue, Cretan tongue. All these different languages are being preached in, at least being heard in. The gospel's being preached in Galilean, and it's being heard in all these other tongues like Latin and Greek, etc. So as the gospel's being preached here, Peter preaches through the Old Testament. He preaches the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. He gets up to verse 13. 
37, and it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is a loaded verse. It is a good verse. It is a doctrinally accurate verse, but it is a verse that must, like all other verses, be rightly divided and put in its proper place with all the rest of Scripture. It does not supersede other scriptures. You can't take that scripture all by itself and throw out the rest of them. In other words, we're not going to break it down and study it today. The Bible says it. I'm not afraid of it. I believe it. I like Acts 2.38. It's a wonderful verse, but I'm not going to throw out the rest of the Bible and build theology off of Acts 2.38 that is inconsistent with the rest of scripture, which is what most you baptismal regeneration folks do, and that's a lie out of hell. And that's all we're going to say about that right now. Peter here tells them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise. Verse 39. We need to look at this verse here for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord, our God shall call. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, while on the one hand, your baptismal regeneration crowd will take Acts 2.38 and stretch it way outside of its context to the destruction of their own doctrine and possibly their own souls, often their own souls as they're trusting in baptism instead of Christ for salvation. On the other side of the coin, many people will take this verse, Acts 8.39 or 2.39, and they'll take the call of God here and stretch it way beyond its context and way beyond beyond the scope of scripture and create their own little pet doctrines about the call of God and possibly to the destruction of their own souls as well into the souls of their posterity. We need to rightly divide this call of God. We need to look at it in the Bible. We need to not be afraid of it in the Bible. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that you should ignore it. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that you have the right to create your own doctrines to explain it. We've got to go to the Bible. This is called Bible time, by the way. And the reason we called it Bible time is God led me to call it Bible time. And this is why God led me to call it Bible time, because the Bible is the central focus of this whole thing. We want to know what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about this so that we can rightly divide the word of truth? Here he tells them as many as our, the Lord our God shall call. It's interesting here to note some people might say that Peter was just really learning. The New Testament hadn't been written. He hadn't really grown in grace and knowledge of God. And so he didn't really know what he was saying. That would be a ridiculous idea. The Holy Ghost knew exactly what the Holy Ghost was telling Peter to say. And Peter said exactly what the Holy Ghost wanted Peter to say, and it was not a mistake. Every word that Peter said here is pure because God had Peter say it for God's to preach God's gospel. God did it. And this is part of the infallible word of God. And you can't just take this and pick it apart and throw this out and throw that out and act like you have some kind of higher revelation than the apostle Peter. You need to just take the word of God for what it says. Having said that, Peter at the time did not understand that the Gentiles were going to be part of the church and the Holy Spirit of God had Peter say it this way to include the Gentiles that Peter in his own understanding would have excluded if the Holy Ghost had not intervened. And here the Holy Ghost says through Peter, even as many as the Lord our God shall call and extends the promise not only to you and to to your children, to the Jews and proselytes, but to all that are afar off. And he might have been thinking when he said that about all of the Jews scattered around the world, but in the heart of God was the Gentile church when Peter said that, even though Peter didn't even know it at the time. Isn't that amazing? Because God, the Holy Ghost, is the one that was preaching through Peter here. And then he says, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And here you find an amazing mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ included by Peter in the very first sermon of New Testament gospel being preached by the apostles after Christ ascended to heaven. 
The call of God to salvation is a pertinent and real part of the gospel, and we need to understand it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Failure to understand the call of God to salvation will take some ministers into total depression. In other cases, it will take some people into a false gospel where they begin to, um, what would be the right word? They begin to groom people for their false gospel. They begin to try and prop up people who are not saved and try and force through a salvation on a sinner that God is not dealing with. Some of you are already ready to shut this thing off. But I hope that by God's grace, this will be a help to you. And I just ask you to bear with me. Have mercy on me. If I say something that's out of line with the action, with the Bible itself, throw it out. But if I'm preaching to you Bible, I humbly ask you to receive it and to learn from it and ask God to teach you. Just like I have to do myself. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. Under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints. With all that every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here's an interesting combination of the call of God to be saints and the call of the sinner to God. In the same verse, you have the call to be saints and you have the call to God. Now, you might say, this is a calling to sanctification here. We'll look at the calling to sanctification later. I don't believe that's what this is saying. You see, in Jesus Christ, when you're saved, you are a saint. And that's clear all throughout the Bible. You might not even act like it. By the way, these people weren't acting like it. And that's why Paul was reminding them of their calling, that their calling was to be a saint. And let's look at some more verses in chapter one, and we'll get more of the context for verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. To do what? to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen yea and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption not only the walk of the Christian, but the original call of the Christian is a work of God. We must get this and understand this today. Here, the apostle Paul is telling them that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In Acts 28, 24, Paul the apostle is preaching the gospel and um, they're in his own hired house in the city of Rome. And as he preaches, the Bible says here in verse 24, and some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. Now the call here, the, the call of God that goes out through all the world, and we'll look at more verses and we'll see more about this. The call of God is most often evidenced through God-anointed preaching. God has ordained preaching as the means by which the grace of God is disseminated to a lost and dying world. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We'll look at that verse in a little while. But that grace of God that hath appeared, God's means by which he sent 
extends that grace is through the preaching of the word of God. God has ordained the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. He has not ordained drama. God has not ordained um, movies. He's not ordained cinematography. He's not ordained poster boards. He's not ordained um, little pieces of literature. Some of those things can be used and some of those things should be used, but ultimately the means that God has ordained to get the gospel out to this lost and dying world is the preaching of the word of God. And the call of God in general across this Bible is most often evidenced in the anointed preaching of the word of God by a man of God or by a servant of the Lord, perhaps even a young lady who's sharing the gospel in her backyard with the neighbor girl across the street. And as she gives her testimony of the power of God in her life to save her, God, the Holy Ghost takes that word, that foolishness and anoints it and makes it real to the heart of the person listening. And they know that what they're hearing is divine. This is what it takes. And this is what we need. And this is what we lack in our day and age. This is what the great preachers of the past had accompanying their preaching. And this is what sets apart their preaching and made it so, um, we would use the word efficacious, which would mean efficient, useful, productive. Their preaching was productive in bringing forth fruit because God, the Holy ghost was going with their preaching and convincing men of sin and righteousness and judgment while they preached. What would you think of a man that walked down a street and he turned a corner and there was a man sitting on the sidewalk that said, ho, such a one, turn in hither. And he went over and sat down and that old man began to talk to him and tell him that everything he ever believed in his whole life was wrong. Tell him that he didn't really know anything that was true and that that old man had the truth and the man produces an old book written by men from thousands of years ago and tells that man he needs to throw away the Christian faith. He needs to throw away Jesus Christ. He needs to throw away the apostles. And he says, this is the true gospel. All you guys have missed it. And if that man believed that man, what would you think of that guy? You would think very little of him as a Christian. You would probably say, some of you out there would say, he lost his salvation. Others of you would more biblically say, the man never was saved in the first place if he can walk away from his salvation. And we would look down on that man. We would consider him gullible. That's one word we might use. We would call him a simpleton. Somebody might be so bold as to call him a fool, and many would definitely agree that he was foolish. Now, Apply that, flip that thing around, and let's say that you're the person sitting on the street corner with a Bible that tells about Jesus Christ, and the man that you asked to come and talk to you is a Muslim who believes the Koran and doesn't believe the Word of God. His people will think just as little of him if he converts to Christianity as we would think of one of ours that converted to Mohammedism. So what is the difference here? What is, what is the difference? The only difference that's available is the power of God. That's it. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. You're telling me, a man may say, you're telling me that some lady had a baby without having a man and that that baby was God in the flesh and he was perfect and sinless and he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And now if I just believe that God's going to wipe away my sin, are you serious? The story of the gospel all by itself is far out and you need to recognize that. It's way outside the scope of human normality. It's not something that appeals to the mind of the intellectual. It's not something that is easily observable. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the message, prove all things. You can look it up where I talk about the legitimate intellectual evidence of the word of God that God includes in the word of God that you should believe the, the Bible because the Bible gives evidence to be believed. And that's true. But ultimately, the gospel, when a, when a lost fallen man is confronted with the gospel, the odds of a man wanting to throw out all of his heritage, all of his upbringing, everything that he knows, everything he understands, and embrace this idea that some foreigner, some stranger just told him, the odds of that happening are almost none 
unless the man is a total fool or he is given some kind of extra incentives. Most religions in the world offer the extra incentives. Membership in the club, better job, better housing, better land. There's a, listen, I'm really leery, and you ought to be too, of mission works that focus on bettering the lives of the people they're ministering to instead of going to the people basically as they are and living among them and ministering the gospel to them on their level. Any ministry that starts building up the lives of the people begins, whether they mean to or not, however nice they're being, they are incentivizing the gospel and they will produce false conversions by the hundreds because people will want to get on the bandwagon. You can get a better house. You can get a more stable income. You can get better food. Anybody would go in for that. That's just good, basic, common sense. But for a man with no other incentives who will lose his family, lose his friends, lose his better job, just like the Bible says will happen. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. A man's foes will be they of his own household. For a man to come to Christ at the expense and the loss of everything, from nation to position to prestige to paternal affection, for that that means family, for a man to lose everything to come to Christ is going to take something that you and I do not have. And that is power. Raw power of God. That when the gospel preacher preaches the gospel, the one who hears the gospel has a spiritual nuclear bomb go off inside his heart. And God Almighty comes down from heaven and says, Thou art the man, and convinces him of his sin, of God's righteousness, and of the judgment to come, and shows him in his heart that it's true. This is the call of God. This is what it means for God to call sinners. And without this, no man will ever get genuinely born again by the power of God. You say, I think you're stretching that. I'm just giving you Bible. As many as the Lord our God shall call. Where people stretch this is something you must be aware of. Beware of experiential theology. Where people make their theology match their experiences. And so for me, let's say, for example, I have an experience of the call of God a certain way, then you must have it the same way. And by the way, the call of God is not something that we're instructed as Christians to preach directly at the lost people. What are we told to tell the lost? Repent, believe the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we are, it's not our job to call people, it's God's job. But if you start making your experience everybody else's requirement, you're going to have one very small following, probably you, yourself, and yourself. Because you're the only one that's probably going to experience the call of God the way that you experienced it. So beware of experiential theology. Oh, I cried like a baby. Oh, it was a voice like thunder in my soul. Oh, the preacher was preaching. Oh, I was at my house. Oh, this happened. That happened. I trembled all over. I didn't tremble. Whatever it is, who cares? What we need to understand as Christians is that this is real and we need it. And then as lost people out there that are struggling and maybe you've got doubts and you're wondering uh, why I've tried to pray, I've tried to believe in my heart, it's just dead. I don't know why and it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like I'm saved. I can't get real assurance. Listen, those people don't need you to go and tell them that they're saved. They need to get it from God. And they need to seek God and they need to understand that God deals with people differently. And that their responsibility to God is to call on God and to keep calling on God and keep repenting and keep seeking God until God assures them himself that they're saved. And that's right. You go telling people, you need to stop doubting you're saved. You be really careful. You set yourself up like a little pope. And you're the one that has the keys to the, to the gates of heaven. And everybody's got to go through you. And if you say somebody's saved, they're saved. You be real careful with that stuff. We're going to look at where God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's real. It's in the Bible. It's right. But let's get it in its context. So here in Acts um, or in Romans chapter one, let's look at this today. And I want to see here today. Again, some of you already think I'm way off the deep end. 
Some of you think this means that we don't have to call on the Lord. We don't just hold on and let's look at the rest of the Bible verses that we have here today. For Christ's sake, I ask you just to look at the scriptures with me today. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God doesn't have to call anyone. And we need to get this figured out. You need to get this down. Lost sinners need to get this down. You do not have the right for God to deal with you. Do you hear me today? You need to understand this. You have no right for God to speak to you on any level in your heart. You have no right for the Holy Spirit of God to deal with you. God is not obligated to do anything to save you. God is obligated by justice to damn you to hell for your sins. And he is not obligated to do anything to save you. That's why the gospel is called, by the way, a free gift in the Bible. A free gift. Did you know that if I walk down the street and I choose to give a free gift to one man standing on the side of the street, there is no obligation in God's law or in man's law that requires me to give that gift to somebody else across the street that saw me give it to him? A free gift is a free gift, and the owner of the gift can give the gift to who he wants to give it to. You need to get this. You need to understand this. God doesn't have to deal with you. God doesn't have to convict you. God doesn't have to make his truth real to you. You say, why do I need to get that? Because you need to understand that salvation is of the Lord, and that you owe God everything, and he owes you nothing. Nothing. God owes you nothing. Do you understand that today? Not only does God already owe you nothing, but he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, and that is more than we deserved a million times over. Not only did he do that, but he poured out his Holy Spirit on his church and commanded his church to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the means by which he calls men to repentance and salvation. Isn't that amazing? That is called unmerited favor. That's called grace. Romans 1 there, if you look at the rest of Romans 1, we're not going to today, but there in verse 28, let's catch this. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God can do that. It's God's right to turn you over. It's God's right if he wants to, to leave you alone in your sin and your ignorance and your pride and never deal with you. That's God's right. Listen to me today. God is not sitting up there in heaven wringing his hand saying, Oh, I just hope those evangelicals will get a few more people saved. I've got a corner empty over here in the back lot of heaven, and I really don't want to have vacant spaces for my big party. That is not the God of the Bible. God doesn't have to deal with anybody. God doesn't have to save you. God doesn't have to do any of that. What he has to do is to be himself, which is to be holy and just and pure. And because he's a merciful God and a long-suffering God, God has chosen of his own free will, apart from any merit that any man ever did, God chose to look down from heaven on a sinful, wicked world and send his only begotten son and give him for the sins of the world to bear the iniquities of the world. God gave his only begotten son a free gift to die for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day and he is alive today. And whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But they won't all call. That's the raw reality. They could all call. 
And if they all called, they'd all be saved, but they will not all call. We'll see that here as we continue our study. Most will not call, in fact. John chapter 1 and verse 9, I want you to see that God is not obligated to save anybody. But I also want you to see that God is willing to save anybody. John chapter 1 and verse 9, not only that, I want you to see that God will move on everybody. John chapter 1 and verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus is the true light, the Bible says. It says he's the word, the word that was God, the word that was with God, the word that made all things and without and was not made anything made that was made. In him, in the word was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now that lighting of every man does not mean every man was saved because it says the light shined in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not, but the light lighteneth. Every man, it lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Look at the next verse. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So while the light is universally spread across the globe, The reception of the light is depended conditionally on the response of the darkness to the light. But while the light is and the reception of the light is dependent on the response of the darkness to the light, we find that the darkness cannot comprehend the light. You say that's getting tangled up. It kind of is, but it's really actually pretty simple unless you want to just try and impose all of your own moral ideas upon God and make him live the way that you think he ought to live. If you'll just accept it the way it says it and believe it, it's actually pretty simple. Here's how it goes again. The light shines on everybody. Nobody can see the light because everybody's darkness, but the light shines on everybody. But those that do receive the light and believe in the light give, get power to become the sons of God. That's Bible. And it's really simple. Unless you want to make a big tangled up theological argument out of it. We've just got to take the Bible for what it says. And this is what the Bible says. Again, Titus 2.11 is a verse we've mentioned before. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Go ahead and turn there and look at it for yourself. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. There are those out here that would preach a limited atonement that Christ only died for some men. That is not in the Bible. I don't care where you learned it. It ain't Bible. You say, you don't sound very educated. I don't care if I don't sound very educated. It ain't in the Bible. And it don't count for nothing. But that didn't sound very educated anyway, either. The Bible is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Limited atonement is a lie. Christ died for all men, the Bible says. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, hopefully you've got there, this verse again, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. You say, well, grace, the sovereign grace of God only saves the elect and the predestined. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, election and predestination in the Bible too. This is way too big a topic for us, okay? It's one of the reasons we're going slow. It's way too big of a topic, and we're not going to get to the bottom of it, and neither are you, no matter how much time you take. The reality is it's all in the Bible, and only those that are elect and predestined are going to be saved. That's just a reality of it. But God wills all men to be saved. The Bible says that God is that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a difference between the sovereign will of God that cannot be revoked or changed and the permissive will of God. 
And God sovereignly has chosen to allow some people to say no to him. And I don't understand that all. Some of you out there want to um, teach the doctrine of irresistible grace. Well, for the Christian, the Christian doesn't want to resist the grace. The Christian may have resisted and God overcame their grace. We get all muddled up in all of our doctrine, all the weird little doctrines that we get out here in the Bible. Let's just teach the Bible. The grace of God that that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Revelation um, chapter 22 and verse 17. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17 and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely that's pretty plain whosoever will let him take the water of life freely so we find that This grace of God that appears to all men is not received by all men. The light that shines on every man doesn't doesn't enter into the heart of every man. And though the water is offered to every man, not every man comes to take a drink. And we also find that the darkness must receive the light, that the thirsty must take the drink, and that without a man trusting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. Whether you say he was predestined or elect or not, he'll spend an eternity in hell. So we find both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man woven together throughout all of the scriptures. And if you neglect one or the other, you'll end in heresy. You'll end, you'll end in heresy and you'll live in error and blindness in part will come on your, on those that follow you. Go to Romans chapter 10. Um, we're going to look more at this verse in a little bit. I don't want to skip any verses here that directly apply to what we're talking about today. Um, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved there in verse 13. But down there in verse 16, it says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise from God. Now here's preachers will get up and they'll say, so pray this little prayer. Now you called on the Lord and you are saved. Who made you God? God's the one that gets to say whether that sinner actually called on the name of the Lord in a heart of belief and faith. You ain't God. God is God. And God will separate the wheat from the tares, not you. We've got those that want to cut all the tares out of the church and say, you can't be in here. You're not really saved. On the flip side, we've got the opposite extreme in a lot of evangelical fundamentalist churches where we say that all the tares are wheat because they prayed a little prayer. And we think that we're God and that we keep the Lamb's book of life and both extremes are false. Takes humility. Let God be true. And every man a liar, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look at this mind-bending verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Well, that'll smoke your theology. The Savior of all men. You get a universalist gets a hold of that church, of, of that verse, and you'll have him preaching, everybody's saved. Is that what it means? Everybody's saved all over the world? No, that's not what it means. That breaks the context, and it breaks the rest of Scripture, and the Scripture cannot be broken. The Scriptures of no private interpretation. You don't get to pick and choose what verses you keep and what verses you throw out. And it literally, by the way, it means all men. You don't get to redefine what God said. It says that God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And that lines up perfectly with the fact that the light lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus died for all men. Jesus' salvation is available to all men, to every man that ever lived. And by the way, in, a, in the sense that Jesus' finished work is perfect, all men have a Savior. 
Because Jesus is the Savior for all men. But not all men will believe and not all men will repent and receive power to become the sons of God. And therefore, those men who reject their Savior will lose their salvation that they never had in any practical reality, but that was guaranteed them by God in the Scriptures. Now, you're really throwing your papers across the room, throwing your hands up in frustration. Are you preaching you lose your salvation? I'm just preaching the Bible, and the Bible breaks most theology, and it just trashes most theology, just to be honest with you. Most of our systematic theology, if you just stick with the Bible, Christ is the Savior of all men. But the Bible just as clearly teaches that because all sinned, Christ died, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says. So while all have sinned and Christ died for all, only those who believe lay hold on and appropriate the salvation that God has given for them. How does the call of God tie into all of this? Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, here these famous verses, these famous eternal security verses. Most people think they label Romans 8. If you take an average person's understanding of the book of Romans, they would put a label over Romans 8, eternal security. That is not what the main point of it is. It does deal with it heavily. The main point of Romans 8 is the power of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer, past, present, and future which includes your eternal security in the future. So that's a part of Romans 8, but it's not the whole package. Now, here in Romans 8, it says, and we know in verse 28 that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, we don't like that part of it, do we? We like all things work together for good, and we'll probably just put a dot, 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 and stick it up on Facebook and get our thousand likes. All things work together for good to them that love God. You say, well, I love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Your love for God, if it's not a love that stems from being called according to his purpose, is a phony love. I meet people that say, no, I've never repented of my sins. I'm not really a sinner. I just love Jesus. Well, you're a phony. You're a fraud. He says here in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. By the way, that's his physical body born 2,000 years ago, though he was not born ever in his deity. He has always existed. The Bible's clear about both. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate. That means to predetermine and fix in place the destiny of that individual. For moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Them he also, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So here you have the call of God in Romans chapter 8, that those that are predestined are called by God, and that those that are called by God are justified by God and glorified by God. So again, that justification, how do you get justified? Therefore, being justified, Romans chapter 5. You can't throw out the rest of the book of Romans here. You can't throw it out. You don't have the right to pick and choose Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we're justified by faith in the word of God. And it says, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. What does that mean? The in between the call and the justification, there was faith toward God. And the faith toward God was was the means by which God justified. And so that faith, that human responsibility placed there in the midst of him that has called you, faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. The faith is, is, has efficacy. It has ability because God has called you. He's opened your understanding to the gospel. He's illuminated your mind and your heart. And through that call of God to salvation, the lost sinner says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and God, who is faithful, who called you, does it. And you're born again by the power of God, not by works of righteousness, 
but according to his mercy, he saved us. Romans chapter 9 and verse 11 here the children, Isaac and Isaac and Rebekah's children here, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elders shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, if it seems like I know a whole lot more, I don't. I'm giving you everything I've got. Everything I've got which is what the Bible says, and that's all I've got. Amen. So here's the call, and he says that, he's, that, that this is according to election and the call of God that Jacob would be loved and Esau would be hated. You don't have a right to throw that out or explain it away. Boy, we are moving slow today. We are going over. I'm just going to make a prophecy right there. How about that? Just throw a prophecy out there. We're going over time today. That's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. Okay, so Romans 9.11, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was not. That means it was not Jacob's goodness. And in fact, God knew Jacob was a scoundrel. God did not look forward through eternity and see before he created the world that Jacob was going to be a pious little preacher's kid. Sitting in the pew with his hands folded, singing the songs of the faith with gusto and with a angelic expression on his face, listening to the exposition of the word of God. God looked through history and he saw a scumbag named Jacob and he foreknew him and he predestinated him and he called him and Jacob believed him and he justified Jacob because of Jacob's faith. And that's Bible. And I don't have to understand it all. It's just Bible. Romans chapter 10 here. Here it says, not of works, but of him that calleth. But then look at Romans 10. Verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call unto him. Every single lost sinner that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and calls on the Lord will be saved. And you say, but every one of those is elect. Does it really matter? That's God's business. Your business is to call on the Lord. And if you call on the Lord, believing on the Lord, he will save you. And if you won't, you'll be damned to a devil's hell. That's your part of the equation. And you better focus on your part and thank God for his part. You say, how do I know if I'm called or not? If you in your heart are feel, feel like you're afraid of hellfire damnation and of the God that's going to cast you into hell and that Jesus Christ is the only way and you're seeking God that is because he is calling you. The light shined in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Any person that has any inclination towards God, any legitimate inclination towards God, that is seeking God in a sincere heart of repentance, is doing it because God has called them. You don't need to worry about who's called and not called. You'll figure it out pretty quick when you go out to soul win supposedly so-called you go out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ones that are not called will not come and the ones that are called will come and that's not your business your business is to preach the word of God it's God's God's business to call it says that the Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him verse 13 for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved look at verse 14 here how shall they then how shall how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher you say oh they don't they don't need to do anything if you're saved you're saved and if you're lost you're lost you're either elect and going to heaven or you're um, elect or you're predestined to hell that is a heresy 
That's straight out of the bowels of hell to preach that to people. The Bible tells you to call on the name of the Lord. The Bible tells you you've got a job to do. The Bible tells you you have to believe on the gospel. And by the way, the Bible tells the church to preach the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? The sovereign grace of Almighty God has through the sovereign will of Almighty God, chosen the foolish things of preaching the word of God and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the conditions upon which his sovereign grace is poured out on the life of a sinner. How shall they preach, he says in verse 15, except they be sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is Bible. We've looked at Bible here today. If this bothers you, I have to ask you, why does the Bible bother you? Why does what the Bible says bother you? And why are you holding on to theology that flies in the face of the Bible? Why are you excluding passages of Scripture that don't suit your preconceived ideas? And if you are today, repent and get right with God. A few things to remember. My prophecy may not come to pass here today. Who knows? We might actually get done. We'll see. Remember, God doesn't have to call anyone. Remember, the call of God is most often the preached word of God with Holy Ghost anointing on it. But Saul of Tarshish didn't get that kind of a call. He got a lot more direct one. Don't box God into your personal theology. Number three, remember, God allows men to disobey the call. Because the sound is gone into all the earth, the Bible says. I didn't um, emphasize that whenever we read over it, but it's right there also in the book of Romans that the sound is gone into all the earth. The call has gone out. Remember, do you remember the parable where the man, the king, called them to the wedding and they would not come? And then he went to the highways and hedges and called them to the wedding and they did come? The call of God can be disobeyed. Rejection, fourthly, of the call of God brings blindness that can last for generations and cut off your posterity from the means of grace. From the means of grace. Take your even your posterity out of the way of righteousness, out of the place where they would more readily be able to be exposed to the call of God. Listen, this is all through the Bible. You can reject this if you want to, and blindness in part will come. Romans chapter 11 there says in verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. He tells us down in verse 20, in verse 19, Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith, not by election. Not by predestination, thou standest by faith. He says, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spare not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. There's a whole lot of people out here who have, who have not been spared. Their families, their posterities, their churches have been cut off from the means of grace. And their children have never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ preached with anointing. They're still responsible because the invisible things of him by the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But they've been cut off. This is the case for many peoples across the world. Salvation, fifthly, to remember, is universally available. But our iniquities have separated us from God, and salvation is not universally attainable. And if you don't get that, you're either going to go into easy believism or hyper-Calvinism. You'll either become a, a hyper-Calvinist or a hyper-Arminiist. And you'll be one of the other, and you'll think that it's up to man whether or not he gets saved. He's just got to go through these motions and do your religious one, two, three, pray after me steps. Or he's got to persevere and endure to the end, that kind of stuff, or you're going to go over to this, we're elect and you don't know what you, and you're not going to know. And you are, if you are, and you ain't, if you ain't, and you won't know till you get there kind of junk out of hell. 
either extreme will come to you if you don't understand that salvation is an act of God. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Salvation is of the Lord. God calls people to salvation. He doesn't have to. God calls some people many times. He might call one person once. He might deal with one person just once. His sound has gone forth into all the earth. You can cut yourself off and your people off from the means of God's sovereign grace being poured out in your life. All those of you that want to argue about if you're elect, that won't happen. That doesn't matter. That's God's business. Mind your own business. What's your business? Mind your business. What's your business? Are you saved? Are you born again? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Has God ever dealt with you over your sin? Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner needing the mercy of Almighty God? Have you ever called on the name of the Lord and cried out to God? And have you done it until you got assurance in your heart that God answered you? If not, mind your own business. You need to worry about yourself. Tend your own fences. Get right with God. Get saved before it's too late. Remember these things today. Salvation is a free gift. You can look at Romans 5 for that. Free gift over and over and over again. Call on the Lord and be saved. God calls you. You believe and God saves you. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Before we close here today, I guess we did go over, so there you go. We just want to touch on a couple things here about the call of God to sanctification and the call of God to service. Once we get saved, we seem to think, oh, God's the one that called me to salvation, and God's the one that does my salvation, but it's up to me to be sanctified. This is, a, this is an error, and it will lead to heresies and problems. We could, we could spend another hour and a half or two hours or three hours right now or maybe the rest of the day. We could spend hours and hours going through Romans 6, 7, and 8, looking at the work of God and sanctifying a believer. And by the way, you'll find out when you get there that it's the call of God to sanctification, and it's the work of God that does sanctification. But what's your part? What's your responsibility in sanctification? Believe God and yield your members to Him. And he sanctifies you. It's not of works. It's the same exact operation as salvation, faith in God who calls and does. It's really simple. And then thirdly, we have the call to Christian service. Paul said, I thank God um, who, found, who counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And we think, well, we've been saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. Now we're going to serve by our own effort and our works. And that's another error. And it leads to all kinds of problems and heresies. You live right by God's power of sanctification in your life through faith. You study and learn by revelation of the Holy Ghost as you seek God in the Bible. You go into all the world in obedience to Christ's commands, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. You preach in the New Testament. The New Testament prophecy is the preached word of God, a gift of the Holy Ghost that we're commanded to covet and to desire to preach to the edification of the church and the convincing of sinners of their sins. Go read 1 Corinthians 14 for all that. Preaching of the word of God is we're, we're asked to do is a gift of the Holy Ghost of God, and God gives the increase. We could go to 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, Paul is watered. I planted. God gives the increase. So once again, in Christian service, God calls you into his service. You believe God, obey him, and God does it. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, that those here today that have misunderstandings and wrong ideas, Lord, that they'd get light. Lord, maybe there's somebody here or listening online that would say, I'm just waiting on God to call me. And Lord, help them to see that that is not their business. That's your business. Their business is to call on you. And Lord, light a fire under their soul, Lord God, so that they'll call on you before it's too late. God, deal with their hearts, Father. Some of these out here, Lord God, slam-dunking sinners, Father, trying to force people to be saved that you haven't dealt with, and they're, they're in darkness, and they don't comprehend the light, Father. And they're trying to make them pray a little prayer so that they can notch their spiritual pistol. Lord, I pray that you'd rebuke that mess. And I pray, Lord God, that you would rescue the people out of it who have a false salvation based on the wisdom of men and wisdom of men's words that have never been dealt with, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit of God. 
God. They've never been convinced of their sin before you. Lord, I'm thinking of some right now, Lord God, over at the nursing home, even where we've been ministering, Lord, who would who say that they've always loved God. They've never really seen themselves as a sinner. They don't, they've never really been dealt with, Father. And they'll, they'll be lost and in their sins and in the lake of fire if they die without a visit from you, Father. We ask you to convince them. We ask you to reject, Lord, and all of their false excuses and throw them to the ground, Lord, and to deal with them, Lord, in their sins and show them their need of a Savior. Lord, we ask for the old-time drawing power, the old-time convincing power of God to fall on our churches and on our ministries. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, for those of us who may understand that you must call them and you must save them, and we've used it as, as an excuse to lay down our swords, Father, and to take our ease, Father, and to just wait for Christ to return without going into battle for souls, Father. Forgive us our indolence, Lord, and our ignorant position, and help us to do what you've called us to do and to mind our business. Let you do what you said you'd do and to get out there and do what you've called us to do. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Please revive your church. Please save lost sinners. Please save preachers and pastors and deacons and elders and bishops and whatever else they call them out there, Lord. I pray that you'd save them, Lord. Those that have been saved, but they are not saved, Lord God, because they've never been dealt with. They've never had their sin dealt with. They've never come under conviction of sin. They don't even understand what it means whenever I talk about it, Lord, and they never will until you deal with them. I pray that you do it, Lord. Lord, I pray for those that would listen to this and have differing opinions on minor points throughout it. I pray that you give them grace for me and areas, Lord, where I may have misrepresented you or been a couple points off of right myself. Father, I pray that you'd have mercy. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us to keep the main thing the main thing, that you are faithful. Faithful is he who hath called you, who also will do it. Help us to trust you and help us to work. In Jesus' name, amen.